I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. This is the inaugural episode of this podcast, and I hope to discuss some issues that will be of interest and recommend some resources and point you to some books and articles to help us think through the important issue of Christianity living in a culture that is increasingly moving post-Christian. I want to begin this podcast by uh, taking a few moments and looking at the psalm from which the title of the podcast comes, and that, of course, is Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song? In a foreign land. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's interesting, one commentator wrote about this psalm. Most psalms are cherished by Christians. This one is not. And that's certainly the case. If you were to look at this psalm and pick it apart poetically, you would find that this is one of the most beautiful, picturesque, and actually carefully crafted poems in all of Scripture. But it's also true that it's one of the most disturbing psalms, particularly with how it ends. So surely this psalm, of all the psalms in the collection, has has no relevance to us, right? I mean, it's interesting, Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, paraphrased almost every one of the 150 psalms, and he interpreted them in the light of the New Testament, applying them to the New Testament church. But he didn't go anywhere near Psalm 137. How could this horribly depressing psalm be relevant for us today as Christians? But on the contrary, what I'd like to do for a few moments is to look at how relevant this psalm really is for us. Now, we don't know exactly who wrote this psalm, but it was most certainly, of course, written by someone who had experienced for himself the Babylonian captivity. And you likely know the broad outlines of that context. Of course, King David, a man after God's own heart, had defeated Israel's most threatening enemies, and he organized plans for the building of God's temple in Jerusalem where true worship would take place. And then his son Solomon built the temple and dedicated it to the Lord. God visibly displayed his presence and his acceptance of their worship according to what he had commanded. But during Solomon's reign, He, of course, married many foreign wives, and those wives brought with them false gods. Solomon allowed false worship to take place under his own roof. And, of course, inevitably, false worship began to permeate the entire nation of Israel. And that ultimately resulted in civil war. The nation divided in two. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ruled the south. His uh, rival, Jeroboam, ruled the north. But, again, false worship leads to a curse. And it wasn't initially full-blown idolatry, but uh, Jeroboam gave in to pragmatism. He didn't want his people to travel down to Jerusalem, to the temple, which was in the southern kingdom. 
And so Jeroboam made two gold calves in honor of Yahweh. He intended to worship Yahweh, but he did so using pagan high places, appointing priests who were not Levites. And of course, God cursed him because of it. And the history of the nation of Israel from that point forward is almost always characterized by religious syncretism, that is the mixing of true worship and false worship, and eventually full-blown idolatry. You read in the Old Testament of occasion in the southern kingdom, there's a good king. But for the most part, the kingdoms are characterized by false worship, and God doesn't tolerate false worship. Because the people do not keep his commandments, God allowed the northern kingdom to be defeated by the Assyrians in a series of invasions until in 722, Assyria completely defeated them and took the people captive. The southern kingdom didn't fare much better because of their increasing idolatry. God raised up the nation of Babylon to invade the nation. And then finally in 586, the city of Jerusalem and its temple are utterly destroyed. And in a series of deportations, the people are taken captive into Babylon. We, we read that even the Edomites, who are mentioned here in Psalm 137, who are descendants of Esau, uh, sort of cousins of the Jews, you could say, aided the Babylonians in the destruction of Judah. And so now God's people are no longer in their land. They're in exile. They're in Babylon. And this is the context for Psalm 137. Here are God's people no longer in their land, no longer in their holy city, no longer in their temple. This is a context of worship in exile. It, it was customary for Jews to gather by a river due to the, the necessity and the law of ceremonial washings, and that's exactly the setting of this psalm. By the waters of Babylon refers to their attempt to gather for worship in exile. And yet they sat down and wept. They hung up their lyres, the predominant instrument of accompaniment for temple worship. Their captors mocked them. Sing us one of your worship songs. But the captive Hebrews couldn't. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? These were God's people in a strange land. They had no homes, no places of worship. They were a, a unique people with a unique identity. But they were aliens and strangers. And this is the setting of Psalm 137. How can we worship God when we are so far from his place of worship? How can we worship God when we are exiles in a land that is hostile to his worship, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And so I hope you can already see the relevance of this psalm for Christianity in the 21st century, living within a culture that is hostile to Christianity. And I hope over the next several episodes of this podcast to further unpack the relevance of Psalm 137 for us as Christians living in 21st century post-Christian culture. Well, in a moment, I want to recommend a book that actually discusses this issue of Christianity living in the world and how we can impact or should we even impact culture. But first, I want to recommend another book to you by uh, David DeBrain, who's a pastor in uh, South Africa. And uh, he wrote a book that Religious Affections Ministries published called The Conservative Church. And his purpose in this book is to aid Christians today in doing exactly what we are discussing in the podcast today. And that is, how do we maintain biblical Christianity in a post-Christian culture? Uh, David says Christianity could die in one generation. The nature of Christianity and any other religion for that matter is that the generation that professes it is responsible to preserve it and propagate it to the next. 
I think of the passage that says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. He continues, a failure to do so will mean that at least as far as living adherents are concerned, Christianity will cease to be. For this reason, all Christians ought to be conservatives. Christians ought to be concerned with conserving all that it means to be Christian so as to pass it on to others. And this book encourages church members in general and pastors in particular to consider practical methods to recover a more fully orbed Christianity in the context of a local church. So I recommend you take a look at this book. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can see information about it at religiousaffections.org. Well, another book that I want to spend a moment just recommending and actually looking through uh, the, the central argument is a book by James Davison Hunter called To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Of course, this issue of whether uh, and how Christianity should, should engage the culture, should change the culture, should transform the culture, is a topic that has gained a lot of interest among Christians uh, throughout the church's existence, but I think perhaps more so or perhaps in a different way in more recent years. And Hunter's book well discusses the issue in in a very important way. Here's just the the summary of Hunter's argument. He He first makes the point that Christians have long had a healthy desire to change the world for the better. And this is natural. We are We are in the world. We are citizens of the the cities in which we live. It's a healthy desire to want to change things for the better, for the good of our fellow man and for the peace of the church. And Christians have rightly believed that changing the culture will occur by changing beliefs. Culture is an externalization of beliefs and values. And so if we want to change the culture, we have to change beliefs. But then he makes a very important point that I think we need to recognize today. And that is that change only occurs in broad ways through what he calls dense networks of elites operating in common purpose within institutions at the high prestige centers of cultural production. In other words, where the big changes take place are in the elite networks of cultural production within a society. And so what he argues is then is that were Christians to be in a position to exert enduring cultural influence, we would need to be in those sorts of elite, uh, high-prestige centers of cultural production. But then he ushers a warning. If Christians were to be in those positions, he argues the result would likely be disastrous. He says the tragic irony is that in the name of resisting the, the dark uh, values, the, the, the nihilisms of the modern age, Christians in, in our will, in our desire to influence, would end up perpetuating those same sorts of values. And, and in so doing, he says, Christians would undermine the message of the very gospel that they cherish and desire to advocate. So in other words, if in order to change the culture, we've got to to infiltrate the the elite networks of cultural production, but in so doing, we would actually undermine the message and purity of the gospel. And I think he's exactly right in in that warning. He argues that instead of wanting aiming for broad large cultural change, which he suggests would result and and maybe Uh, we could argue, have resulted in actual compromise. 
The alternative solution for Christians today should simply be faithful presence within culture. That is seeking to live as Christians in whatever sphere God has called us into, in whatever vocation God has called, uh, simply spreading the gospel in, in the communities in which God has placed us, faithfully serving in our local churches, and simply just being faithful. Uh, he, he argues that, it, that it's, it's essential to actually abandon talk of redeeming the culture or advancing the kingdom or building the kingdom or transforming the world or reclaiming the culture or reforming the culture or changing the world. Whatever language we use, he says we, we need to abandon that language. That kind of language implies conquest. It implies takeover. It, it implies dominion, which in his view is precisely what God does not call us to pursue at least not in any conventional 20th or 21st century way of understanding these terms. That's not what God has called us to do. He says, if we ask the question, will engaging the world in this way change the world, we're actually asking the the wrong question. That question is based on the dubious assumption that the world, and thus history in general, can be controlled or managed. And he says that is not the church's role. That is not Christianity's role. Christianity is not first and foremost about establishing righteousness or creating good values or securing justice or making peace in the world. It's not about broad social or cultural change. The primary good is God himself. And the primary task of Christians in general and the church in specific is worshiping God, is honoring him in all we do. And if we do that, if we do what we have been called to do, simply worship God, spread the gospel, honor him in our vocations, he says maybe it's possible, just possible, that we will gradually help to make the world a little bit better in in the spheres in which we live. But faithful presence is the key, and we shouldn't be aiming for broad social or cultural change, which inevitably will result in compromise as we seek to find a seat in centers of power. Well, in a moment, I want to conclude the podcast by focusing our attention on what should be our foundation for all that we do, especially as Christians living in the 21st century. But first, I want to recommend to you a a blog article that I've found helpful that relates to what we've been discussing. And this is found on the Gospel-Centered Discipleship website, gcdiscipleship.com. It's an article by uh, Sean Nolan called Return to the Ordinary Means of Grace. And I'd recommend you go read the article. He makes the point that we, we live in a remarkable time with lots of technology and, and novelty is the, is the key of our day. And so there's a strong impulse to impress people and draw, uh, draw a crowd. But he argues that what we win people with, we win them too. And what we win them with, we have to keep them with. And our call is to discipleship, not to draw crowds. And so he argues instead of of trying to draw crowds and to entertain them, we need to zealously guard the ordinary means of grace, the word of God and prayer. These are not flashy things. These are not things that will entertain, but these are the things that will really nurture and mature and disciple the people in our congregations. Studying the scriptures, crying out to God in prayer, these are elementary principles of Christianity. We tend not to want to fall back on such simple elements, but these are the elements that God has prescribed. These are the elements that God has ordained to be that which will disciple and mature our congregations, and we need to return to what historically Christians have called these ordinary means of grace. I highly recommend this this short uh, blog post to you and, and hope that we can return to such important, critical elements. 
Well, I want to close this podcast by centering us back to the Word of God. You know, Christians are people of the book, and, and conservative evangelical Christians in particular have rightly demanded that our beliefs and our lives are governed by Scripture. This needs to drive us. The Word of God needs to drive us as Christians in the 21st century living in a post-Christian culture. But exactly what that means is not always clear, particularly when we're dealing with matters of Christian living. What does it mean to be people of the book? On the one hand, some Christians believe that the Bible is, is an exhaustive list of prescriptions and prohibitions that reveal how God wants his children to live. And if the Bible doesn't address something explicitly, then uh, perhaps God doesn't care about that particular issue. And Christians are free to make their own decisions based on, on their preferences. But other Christians believe that the Bible is sufficient and authoritative for everything, everything that we face, even in the 21st century, even things that perhaps Paul and Peter and John in the first century never would have encountered. The Bible is sufficient for these things. And when we are faced with a decision not found in a chapter and verse of Scripture, God nevertheless cares about those things. And it's our responsibility to actively apply biblical principles to contemporary situations in order to do the will of the Lord. And of course, the the debate lies in the primary definition of what the sufficiency of Scripture means. And the important text here, of course, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And really the question is, what does it mean when Paul says here, complete, equipped for every good work? Does that mean that the Bible explicitly addresses every single issue that is important to God? Or does it mean that the Bible speaks principally to everything, even those issues not explicitly addressed in Scripture? And I I believe that the sufficiency of Scripture means the latter, that the Bible is sufficient for everything, even issues not explicitly addressed. Any issue that we face in the 21st century, the Bible is sufficient. And I believe that this is the correct way of interpreting this phrase for a couple of reasons. First, the Bible itself teaches this view. For example, if you look at vice lists in Scripture, such as those found in Galatians chapter 5, these vice lists are clearly not meant to be exhaustive. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5, after listing works of the flesh, he says, and things like these. There are other things that Christians will need to deduce for ourselves that are like the sinful things that Paul lists that we need to be able to discern in our current context. And and the Bible describes a mature Christian as one who is able to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12, 2. And even when the Bible doesn't give something explicit or prohibit something explicitly, a mature Christian is one, according to Ephesians 5, who has his powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. That's the mark of maturity. But second, this this is what theologians have historically taught. The historic confessions indicate that, that God's will for his people is either expressly set down in Scripture, that's the clear prohibitions and c- clear commandments, or, and this is language from the Westminster Confession, language from the, the, the London Baptist Confession, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. In other words, certainly we must not do what the Bible prohibits and we must do what the Bible commands, but we also must deduce from Scripture principles 
by which we judge contemporary situations and apply the sufficiency of Scripture even to those situations. And then finally, even common sense necessitates this view. I mean, where in Scripture, for example, does God explicitly address things like safe driving or healthy living or even abortion or recreational marijuana use, which is in the news uh, recently? Nowhere. Nowhere are those things explicitly addressed. And yet most Christians will recognize that the Bible speaks to these contemporary decisions. The Bible is sufficient even for these things, not by way of explicit prohibition or command, but through broader principles that we as Christians are required to actively apply. God has a moral will for every decision that we make as Christians, and it is our responsibility As Christians living in the 21st century in a post-Christian culture, it is our responsibility to study the Scripture, to deduce principles found in the Scriptures, and then actively apply them to everything that we do. Thank you for listening to the By the Waters of Babylon podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes and other podcast services. Give us a rating. And join me again next time as we look at issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Thank you.